Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. Conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Sets of Church Leaders podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, National Director of Churches of Welcome at World Relief. And this week, we're continuing our conversation with Drs. Kyle Strobel and Jamin Goggin. Kyle is a teacher, writer, and preacher. He's the Associate Professor of Spiritual Theology and Formation at Talbot School of Theology at Biola. Jamin's a professor at Biola University pastor at Mission Hills Church, and director of the Center for Christian Formation. Colin and Jamin have collaborated on several books, including The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, Searching for Jesus' Path of Power in a Church That Has Abandoned It. We concluded last week's episode with Kyle explaining how God revealed to him and Jamin that they were pursuing ministry from a place of selfish ambition and jealousy. It was Marva Dawn that when we interviewed her for the book, who told us, if you want to see selfish ambition and jealousy, just go to a pastor's conference. Wow. And and we knew that because we've been there. We've we've been jealous at these things. Sure. We've been on, you know, we've been making what we thought were the right decisions, watching people we knew weren't faithful who are exploding in their ministry and being lauded everywhere for how great they are. And and we were brooding in jealousy about mm. that. And mm. the Lord had yet to teach us that. No, no, you guys are still doing the same thing they are. You you need to you need to trust yourself over to a different way. And so that that's where it becomes demonic, where we begin kind of wielding the self um, from the self and for the self. And I would even say where we begin using kind of equations for ministry and success where the spirit isn't necessary, but is superfluous. And so if you could kind of give a model for something, whether that's church growth, church planting, or even in spiritual formation. I see this in spiritual formation all the time. Most of the models I see in spiritual formation, God's at best unnecessary, mm. right? It's just, here's a practical model to grow yourself. And that is just as demonic. You know, if, if spiritual practices are merely, you know, a three-step process to to grow yourself, that that's just as kind of fleshly and demonic as anything else. And so, we need to pay attention to those sorts of things. And for Jamin and I, those are things the Lord really kind of showed in us. Like we, we saw the demonic at work in our own lives and our own desires to be great in ministry. I think Ed, Kyle's <clears throat> given our kind of fundamental answer. This is our shared answer. But I think one maybe anecdote comes up for me, thinking in particular about the audience here and pastors mm-hmm. and ministry leaders listening to this. I, I remember years ago, I was... I'm meeting with a pastor regularly for soul care. And after several meetings, he said to me, and kind of in the form of a confession, this is a guy who had um, sm- smaller-ish megachurch, uh, multi-site, um, really successful. It started co- you know conference out of that. And he said to me, you know, Jamin, I really have come to reflect on my ministry and all that's kind of been built and developed here this particular church I'm at and this kind of conference ministry out of it. And if, I, if I'm really honest, I'm not sure I needed to be a Christian to do most of this. And that, that kind of stopped me in my tracks, you know, not just be a faithful pastor, <laughs> but be a Christian. And I think to kind of think about the tools question and the tools in our hands, I, I, again, I think, um, so much of my experience has been those kinds of tools are wielded 
so as to avoid the hard work of things like actually coming to know another soul and discerning their heart. Mm. Things like having to wrestle in prayer about what God is actually doing. Things like having to bear with one another uh, in an elder room as a decision is made and arrive at unity. These things are highly inefficient, highly ineffective in getting (laughs) things done and highly unproductive. Well, when efficiency and effectiveness and productivity become kind of like our primary virtues, not actually love, things like patience, gentleness, bearing with one another, the, the stuff that actually love requires, the stuff that actually demonstrates love is actually up and running, those become problems to do away with. Mm-hmm. So now I just kind of take this tool, take this metric, take this system, I can run a, a candidate, church planner candidate through it, or a potential hire for my, for my youth pastor at my church uh, w- without ever actually discerning a life, mm-hmm. without ever actually knowing their prayer life the state of their relationship with the Lord. Because of course, well, that takes time. And that's like really inconvenient. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it actually requires, truth be told, a sense of weightiness of my own soul and wisdom to discern. And now probably a a shared discernment over this person's life just to hire a youth pastor. Well, who's got the time for that? Well, yeah, but what happens when that youth pastor three years later turns out text messages students and turns on with people's lives. I mean, it's, it's time invested. Yeah. And so I, I guess what I'm driving at is I, I think what you, I would want you to hear me the same way yeah. I, you did before, which is I don't want to throw out like, there's no right. place for any of these things. Right. Of course. I want right. to know something about, have you ever preached before? Do you know how to rightly divide the word? <laughs> Those <laughs> seem important. Can you, can you actually talk to adults, like the parents, not just hang out with teens? Right. right? Like, of course, of course, of course. And there's maybe mm. really helpful tools and ways of assessing that. But, but the pendulum swings. You're, you're trying to bring the pendulum back. The yeah. deeper work that's demanded okay. of me, which yeah. is now I have to discern What's really going on in this person's heart? Yeah. What's going on in life for a church? What's God actually doing? Yeah. What is the way of love here? Well, these aren't the kinds of things that can be assessed and measured and calculated in purely worldly terms, right? This is now going to have to be done a different way. A lot of what you guys have said uh, is helpful in helping to assess whether or not uh, maybe a culture is abusive or uh, or the power structures are, in a sense, the way of dragon, uh, to borrow from your book. Um, how can you help a, a leader become more self-aware of how potentially they're misusing power? So, because most leaders that what we would say maybe maybe are toxic or abusive, it's hard for them to see that. Where does the self-awareness come from? Uh, is that something that uh, an elder board? I mean, where where can we help people become more aware? that they actually are practicing a form of power that's antithetical to Jesus? You know, I think that's a great question, actually. And one of the, I think what's hard about it is that for a lot of folks, if they're already in positions of leadership, it could be too late. Hmm. Because the way a lot of those folks get there is to burn all the bridges, to have no one who actually gets to speak into their life, um, to be unknown by everyone. 
And I, I think one of the reasons why they have a hard time seeing it in themselves is they don't know themselves at all. And they're not known by anyone else at all either. And so I, I think if we're thinking about like the development of leadership or a cultures of leadership, um, elder cultures, Jamin and I are both elders. I preach monthly at my church. So I'm, I'm, I'm um, an, an elder there, um, cultivating, um, relations that aren't above or below relations, but actual kind of mutual relations of friendship and, and, um, um, kind of sibling like relationships where, I'm not lording it over you. You can speak into my life. I'm rebuking you. You're rebuking me. Or at times I'm holding open, which I know we both do with our elders at times. You know, guys, I'm kind of tempted to this. Like, I know I'm tempted this way. I I need you to know that. And I need you to be able to speak into that. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, to Jamin's point earlier, I think... When we get in the mindset as, as, and this again, this is a very evangelical temptation. When we get in the mindset that it's our job as leaders, pastors, elders, whoever, to get things done, in a very real sense, the battle's already lost. Ultimately, our call is to love and to bear witness to the resurrected and ascended Lord of glory. Our, our prime, now again, that doesn't, that should not lead us to not get things done, right? This is where we need to be so careful to add to your comment. Like, it's so easy to just pendulum swing this thing. Um, but we need to hold open the reality that, um, being faithful to the Lord isn't somehow antithetical to getting things done. Mm. And, and we shouldn't think that somehow ignoring our brokenness, ignoring the toxic things in our midst, um, I mean, for goodness sakes, if you just look around the church today, I mean, how many cover-ups are based on this deep belief that, no, no, this will hurt how much we can get done, how much impact we can have. And if we're selling the truth and if we're, you know, throwing abused victims under the bus because we're, we're so kind of invested in our brand, our identity, our getting things done, then look how far we've gotten from what Jesus was about. And so we need to kind of have places where these things are reordered. And and I think once it becomes a virtue to be known, then pastors are going to find the space where, oh, okay, it, it could be okay for me to be open to the truth of who I am. I don't have to be afraid of that now. Where I, you know, a lot of guys I know, they can't be open to who they are because their elders aren't interested in who they are. Right. They're not interested in hearing about their problems. Right. It's very true. Yeah. I think some of this question, Daniel, is answered by that challenge of ecclesiology I mentioned earlier. And I, I don't, um, well, that is a big question, isn't mm-hmm. it? You know, uh, how we are structured, how we think about church governance, how we think about relations within the church and structures of leadership. And, you know, a Presbyterian is going to wrestle through this differently um, than a non-denominational Actual Southern Baptist evangelical. <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. Jamie, I want to interrupt you for one second because I want to yeah. expound on this. When you talk about ecclesiology, a lot of people, and some of our audience are very theologically minded, some are more practically minded. But because we mentioned earlier the, the sacraments and you know mutual accountability and those kinds of things, I think it's important to note that you're not in a Eugene. Eugene Peterson, we all know what Eugene Peterson's church would have looked like. 
and you're not in a church like that. So I think that's an important distinction. We're not talking about necessarily everybody becoming Anglicans and and every you know doing this. And no. again, I love my I'm, I love that I came to Christ in the <laughs> charismatic movement of the Anglican Church. But when you talk about ecclesiology, you're in a large, uh, multi-staff church, and you're not doing what Eugene Peterson says, which is you should wear a robe so people can't, you know, you can't be about, you know, all these sorts of things. You're not doing those things. So what do you mean by ecclesiology? And then keep going on Daniel's answer, but I'm just afraid people are going back and hearing this in the context of, we just need to adopt greater liturgical forms and kind of ecclesiastical structures. That's not what you're doing. So talk to us about ecclesiology. Yeah, no, well, I will, so I can answer somewhat practically what, how this shows up in my own ministry. But I think part of what I'm getting at is really just to say with humility, we recognize that some part of this question has to be answered there. Like things like polity and governance, right? Um, Structures of actually holding pastors accountable. Well, wow, there's a wide degree of variance of what that means and what that could look like. And some structures are better than others. And so it's, it's simply to say, we don't want to kind of ignore the fact that structures do matter and that polity does matter and that governance matters. And, um, I think some structures lend themselves to answer your primary question. You know, some structures lend themselves to providing a space for pastors to be known, um, to providing a space where pastors are held accountable. And some structures lend themselves less to that, right? To varying degrees. And so just, just by way of saying that that is part of the equation. And for evangelicalism, it is overwhelmingly towards less accountability in mainland processes or liturgical denominations. It's the other way. So to get to kind of my context, I think one of the, I'll answer this a couple ways in my immediate experience. One is on a personal note, it's about cultivating a particular life of prayer. And um, if, if part of my, if, if, Part of my regular practice in prayer is not drawing near to the Lord and the truth of myself. If I have not learned what it is to embrace the way of confession uh, with the Lord, I'm going to be in real trouble as a pastor. So good. Um, that, that, that's the first thing I want to say. Beyond that, I think internal to my experience in ministry, one is I, I am at least actually personally in kind of a co-pastoring um, uh, structured dynamic. So we don't have one senior pastor. We have kind of two co-lead pastors, if you want to use that language. But myself and the other co-lead pastor, we are genuine friends. And there is real reciprocity in our relationship. There's real differences. There's areas where, boy, we, we disagree. There is fundamental agreement and unity on what is essential, doctrine, philosophy of ministry, understanding of the vocation. but that friendship and the, the reciprocity therein, and even the, the tension that can come from real friendships and relationships that can be really healthy. Right? That is a significant contributor in the Lord's work and mirroring to my own heart. What's really driving me, right? When I, when I show up to a particular experience in ministry driven by my anxiety, because what's surfacing now for me is a prior experience in ministry it has nothing to do with this moment. I have a co-pastor who can go, you know, I'm not sure your heart is responding to what we're actually experiencing. It might be because of something you've experienced before, because I'm not relating to it that way. I'm not as worried about that or feel the need to kind of get our hands on the reins as much as you do on this. I think, I think we can kind of let it be. Boy, that has proven incredibly helpful for me. And what I would say is that is reflected in our whole elder room. So we are two among many who share 
equal responsibility of being under shepherds in the church. And one of the practices we have taken up as a, as a board of elders over the last several years, that I, I think it was one of the things I'm most proud of actually in our ministry is we regularly practice confession of sins with one another. Wow. So we schedule on our agenda as elders about quarterly um, to confess our sins to one another. And we really do it. And if you don't, it's really obvious you're not. Mm. <laughs> and boy, I can tell you the first time we did that, it was profoundly uncomfortable, right? Profoundly. But it has become such a blessing to experience with one another being known and to speak over one another's lives, God's forgiveness, to know, boy, there are things that definitely disqualify me from this office, but it turns out just being a sinner doesn't because <laughs> then I couldn't be in the room and no one else ever could, right? And so sometimes there's things we actually hold in our own hearts as kind of disqualifying ourselves in quietly that aren't disqualifying, that if we bring them into the light, we can receive a good word of God's forgiveness and healing and being known. And other times there are things that might tip into that, that if we cultivate a culture where actually being known and being honest and being vulnerable and confessing sins is normal, if we're one who has become to now hide things that really need to be brought into the light that could be disqualifying, it becomes all the more obvious we're hiding because that's not what we do here. We don't hide. We share what's really going on. You know, I, I can, uh, I've often said at a conference that when I am concerned about these issues, that the desires that drive us often become the demons that drag us down. Mm. And, um, you know, I've seen it, you've seen it. I, I, in the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, I said that the, uh, there's a body count of young pastors whose ability elevated them higher than their character was ready to handle. And right now I'm looking at a, on my screen, I'm looking at a, at a seminar or a conference I spoke at a few years ago. And uh, the host is on one side and then uh, I'm on the other side and there's, there's, there's uh, seven of us there. And I look at these, they're all well known. I think everyone would know all the pastors and of the five in the middle, three of the five uh, got in trouble and lost their current ministry because of some failure related to power. So literally mm. like I'm looking at it right now. And so it does definitely catch are, I mean, it just, it just catches our breath. And I, I think everyone can look back in hindsight and say, well, you know, they must not have been keeping the balance. But it seems like the whole machine of evangelicalism, and I, I, I watched this uh, Lonnie Frisbee uh, documentary years ago. Lonnie Frisbee mm -hmm. was in the Jesus Revolution movie that everyone talked about. But there's this documentary about him that, that I would have mixed reviews of, and you wouldn't agree with everything in it. But one of the things that I remember from that, so I mean, there's lots in there, and I'm, I'm, I love learning about the Jesus movement. One of the things in there is they would just use Lonnie Frisbee up. Don't, don't worry about your marriage. Don't worry about your spiritual problems. Mm. And one of the things I found as a public speaker or whatever is that I'm sometimes the only person advocating for my own family, for my own spiritual health. They're like, Ed, can't you just come and spend four days? And people get mad at you when you when there's a three-day event and you can't speak every morning. So I just need to speak one day. Well, you're just a celebrity. No, I want to go home to my family. Um, yeah. And so, so for me, you know, I've seen the way people get used up. And we all look back in hindsight. But it seems to me there's got to be a better way to tell in the moment that you're I mean, people listening right now, you or somebody you're working with is headed off. And I will tell you that I, I think that some of the pe some people I know who I just, 
and and I didn't see, and yet there become these these failings that flow from a lack of thoughtfulness about how to use power. So, I mean, mm-hmm. how do we? How do we, I mean? If the heart's deceitful and wicked above all else, are we just all just stuck and we're just going to blow ourselves up, or what do we do? I need you to solve all my problems, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, I, I'm reminded of a. I, I held a weird job at Willow Creek for a summer in college, and I don't even still to this day don't know what the job was. But I, I got every weird phone call got forwarded to my desk. And two things struck me when I was sitting at that desk. One, how many churches would call us desperate to know weird things, thinking that that's where the power was? Like, what, what kind of carpeting do you guys use? What kind of espresso machine are you guys currently? Like, literally, these are the questions I literally am getting from churches desperate to figure out how do we make things work? If we have the right carpeting, we have the right espresso. Like, notice that God, the spirit, the truth, none of this is irrelevant, is relevant. Like, it was just totally pragmatic. But then on Friday afternoon, every Friday afternoon, it, to the point where I began to despair because it was so horrifying, I would get these, these pastors frantically calling me because they couldn't download their sermon for Sunday. And they were convinced that... Wow. If the only way to make the, and, and this, I know, and I don't even blame them. I, I just feel bad for them because they, they were, they were, they were convinced the pastorate is a performative endeavor, primarily mm. not a spiritual endeavor. And they knew they couldn't win. And so their solution wasn't to throw themselves at the mercy of their Lord, trusting that if I abide in him, I will bear much fruit. Their solution was, I'm going to, I'm going to take someone who does have the power. I'm going to take his sermon and I'm going to try to make it my own. And, you know, it's, we, we have evangelicalism right now. I mean, we're kidding. Look at the publishing industry. Look at, I mean, all across the line, we're convinced that power is not located in God. It's located in certain individuals. It's located in certain talents. It's located in certain platforms. It's located in certain, and it's, we, we have embraced a vision that God isn't necessary for. And until we recover that, we have no hope because we're going to find churches that still hire toxic pastors because there's a reason these people do well. People want them, right? We want toxic powers. We think it'll get us somewhere. I mean, it, we still think it's going to get our politics up and running. We still think it's going to fix this. We still, you know, we still have a deep belief that evil power is the only power that can actually get things done. And to put it in biblical terms, we still think we have to walk by sight and we're desperately hoping we won't have to walk by faith. And, and I think at the end of the day, it's going to turn out, we're going to have to wake up and, and decide, no, no, we're going to follow Jesus. We're going to walk by faith and not by sight and trust that he actually was telling us the truth. Yeah. And I think, um, boy, I, I feel the weight of your question. That's that's how my heart feels. I feel mm-hmm. the weight of your question. I think what shows up for me maybe is two things. One is, yeah, the problem you're naming is precisely the problem we sought to name sure. with our book. And, and I, I found I, helpful too. I, I, I remember. To I remember. Um, we've briefly shared this, maybe once or twice before, but not not many times. I I remember that you know we were right when the book came out. You know how this goes. You kind of like can you write an article here and write an article there and write an article here to let everybody know there's a book. And, and one of those conversations with an editor at prominent, you know, kind of ministry platform read our article in which we kind of claimed this is the crisis of the church today is power. And, um, and the response was something like 
hey, totally agree that there's there's maybe a bit of a problem here, but is it really like the issue? And of course, I, I don't know that this editor would say say the same thing now, this many years later. I think part of what you're getting at is precisely what we're trying. Yes, it is the issue. It is the thing underneath all so many other things um, that are going on in evangelicalism. And I think so. There is a kind of feeling the weight of your question, I suppose, feeling the force of it, and actually just feeling. And that I think that leads me to my second point is just to say, I my prayer is that for all those who um, are in the church in North America and are evangelicals, whatever that term means nowadays, but are, are in this group we've been talking about, um, that the stories that show up on um, you know, CT online or that they see scrolling through their kind of Twitter feeds or they see posted on Facebook about the next pastor and the next pastor and the next pastor. My 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 prayer would be that we would move beyond merely ah, another one into feeling together the force of your question. Like, Lord, what is it you are teaching us? What is it you're showing us about our hearts? For these are the men we have wanted. These are the kings we cried out for. And what is it you want to teach us? Because I think. Um, sometimes what can be missed in the social media reckoning is a divine reckoning that's taking place. Like the Lord is at work. He is the, he is clearing his temple and the light is exposing the darkness and the invitation when God's light exposes darkness is to walk as children of light. But to do that, we've got to be honest about the ways we've been complicit in the darkness, not just say, all these bad leaders onto the next one. Yeah, but we have now far too many stories and far too many examples of all of those whose books we read, whose sermons we listened to, whether we went to their churches or not, who we followed, who who now have fallen from ministry. And we need together to draw near to the Lord and say, Lord, teach us. What well, teach us your way, because we have not walked in it. Mm. This has been a, a really challenging, but also pertinent uh, conversation. And as we wrap up, uh, you know, I'm and just listening to your your answer there. I'm thinking about two or three other church scandal cases that broke in the last few uh, months as well. And so, uh, maybe the last thing you're speaking to pastors and church leaders, and the next time another scandal breaks or another leader falls, especially if they're within a sphere of influence that a pastor may belong to, let's say it's their denomination, their network. Um, what, what, what would you suggest be their immediate response? I know, I know it's prayer, but like, what would be the immediate response that you think is most helpful uh, when somebody in your circle, in your tradition falls and there has to be some kind of uh, cleanup? What do you read? What do you do as a pastor when that happens? Well, some initial thoughts that come up and how can share, but I think, yeah, I think the first prayer that you write is to begin with prayer is I think really a prayer of intercession there. Um, it can be so easy to fix our gaze upon those we think we see as having done wrong. And even in the process, forget those who were wronged and 
really lament and grieve with them and cry out to God on their behalf. And so when I say that, I think not just of um, a woman taken advantage of in a vulnerable counseling relationship by a pastor, but I think also of that pastor's family as victims of that reality. Yeah. You know, a family that often is coerced into being quiet for the sake of, quote, the pastor's ministry preservation and therefore their preservation as a family. And wow, the pain of that for a wife or for sometimes young children, but often adult children. I think of the churches that are now reeling from the kind of disorienting experience of not knowing who they can trust because the one they thought they could trust the most turns out to be a liar. And so there's a, we need to pray for these people, these victims, these families, these churches, especially, especially, especially if we know them, like their names need to be on our lips before the Lord consistently. I think the degree to which we're connected then I think pushes to the foreground some other questions about how might we be involved beyond that. And if this is someone, pastor, we have a relationship with, you know, in recent years, these stories have moved from pastors I've heard of to pastors I know. This is just what happens as you get older in ministry. And um, I, I have found in myself actually a real temptation to kind of cut off communication so as to not be kind of stained with their sin or be misassociated, when in reality, they, they are a friend or have been a friend. And I want to relate to them yet still as a friend. Speak the truth and love to them about their sin, to be sure. But that's what a friend does. And it's times like these when those who have fallen are often left, despite the articulation of a restoration plan, are often left very much on their own. Hmm. And they need friends to move towards them and say, hey, what happened here isn't okay. And I'm going to hold you to account for that. But I'm going to be with you in this. If you're willing to turn to the Lord, I'll turn to the Lord with you. And I'll walk that road with you. And I think there are many pastors who um, they find themselves without friends in the hour they need them the most, which is the hour of sin. Yeah. And so I, so I want to encourage pastors in these these situations you described, Daniel, to, again, it depends on relationship, depends on context, of course, but the degree to which there's relationship, shared ministry, friendship, move towards them uh, in love, seek to befriend them through this process of um, repentance, confession, finding healing and restoration in their life. Let me ask one last question, because um, I want to I end on a note for the listener to then say, all right, uh, we hear a phrase like here, but the grace of God go I. Uh, we, we know and feel uh, the temptation to do things in our own flesh. I feel it. I, I feel it. I think others listening do. Um, so what final exhortations do you, and it can be a summary in some ways of what we talked about, but what would your final exhortation be to be the listener who says, I want to finish well. I just celebrated on Twitter, a friend of mine who's a uh, retired godly man, walk through this godly family for decades. And boy, I sure wish I heard more of those. Uh, what what would be your exhortation to the listener so that they might walk rightly in and around the issues of power and ministry? Yeah, well, the and this, you know, I, I feel like I repeat myself on this one a lot because <laughs> this is just a verse that 
is just ever before me because of this question in many ways, which is do not grow weary in doing good. And it's, you know, the, the reality that because, as, as Paul's going to say in Second Corinthians 4, um, don't set your mind and your eyes on things that are visible, but the things that are invisible. For the things that are visible are fading away, and the things that are invisible are eternal. And so what we cultivate in our ministries, again, you can't, you can't merely look by sight. And for good or for bad. Um, you know, and for, for those of you who have exploding churches and your sight is like, yes, we're doing it. You know, you have to hold that open before the Lord. And, for, but for those of you who are looking at your church and the sight doesn't give you excitement, it gives you despair. Remember, <laughs> we walk by faith and not by sight. And if you do not grow weary in doing good, um, you can trust that if you abide in the Lord, you will bear fruit that lasts. Yeah, I think what comes up for me is how many pastors would describe their ministry as little, as hidden, mm. as the least. And what I want to say is there are no better words to describe the good and faithful work of the kingdom. Mm. And for those, as you said, Ed, that have been faithful in ministry, um, abiding in Christ by the Spirit, what I want to say to them, you have had a powerful ministry. That's what this is all about, by the way. It's mm. easy for us to forget. Right? Yeah. It's not about rejecting all power uh, and embracing weakness as such. It's about embracing our weakness so that we might know the power of God at work and be empowered by his spirit in our, in our ministry. And so um, I think we don't need to go hunting for our weakness. If your life is anything like mine, every day you're presented with it. As your children ask questions you don't know the answers to, even though you are supposed to know the answers as a pastor, as um, you face a church discipline scenario that it befuddles you and you aren't sure what to do, as you just feel tired and exhausted and not really up for preaching again, and rather you just rather stay home and watch football if you're honest, <laughs> even though you complain about the guys that stay home and watch football, right? Like mm. all these moments in our lives as pastors. Now these become occasions by which we can say, oh, Lord, yep, I need you right here. What a good place this is to be, to abide in you, not in my own strength, but in yours, Lord. We've been talking to Kyle Strobel and Jamin Goggin. Be sure to check out their book, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, Searching for Jesus' Path of Power in a Church that Has Abandoned It. Thanks again for listening to the Stessa Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you find our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review that help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.